Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello again, students and scholars of the next gen. It's time for yet another nine holes with your Tech Talk and caddy, Matthew Dickerson. Welcome back onto the fairway, Matthew. How's your week been? Yeah, pretty good. And you obviously know that my golf is very limited. About nine holes is about the limit of my golf game. So you've picked well there, James. Good on you. Yeah, so we can race around and a uh, quick half hour of nine holes. Yeah. Yep. And what have you been reading about this week? Well, it's interesting, James. One of the things that I find that we do talk about a lot in general at the moment is just the environment, how we can try and help the CO2, the greenhouse gases in our environment. A lot of the focus seems to be around reducing the way we produce power, reducing the greenhouse gases we produce power. So rather than coal-fired power plants, we've got wind farms or solar, or we've talked about nuclear batteries. Get in your renewals. But one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is what about if we reduce our power usage that's got to help the situation as well. Of course. And so I looked into that a bit, and I've read a few articles on that this week. And one of the things that's interesting is that homes across this nation use about 40% of their power in the household, producing enough power to heat or cool homes. Yeah, that that sounds about right too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then of all the homes across the nation, about 20% of our overall power usage is used in homes. So heating and cooling is about 8% of our total energy usage. There's a really cool little substance called silica aerogel, and we might do a more detailed story on this in weeks to come, but it's got incredible insulative properties. It traps the gas inside so you don't get convection going through the substance, Right. and it's a silica, so you don't get any conduction. So two of the three ways that heat's transferred, conduction and convection, are basically nullified what by this that? substance. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So Amazing. if you could get this sort of substance used in houses rather than the bats that we typically use it. In fact, it's about four times as good as a bat for insulative properties. But I'm going to guess it's, it's a lot thinner as well, yeah? Incredibly thin, yeah. yeah you yeah. can get great insulative properties out of a very thin thin substance. So rather than putting a few bats up in our ceilings and some around the walls, maybe you've still got gaps where the timber sits and it's a bit how you going when we put it around. Using something like silica aerogel to insulate our homes could go a long way to plugging that 40% usage that we have for heating and cooling. So that's being worked on as we speak. Silica aerogel was ridiculously expensive in the past to produce. It was made for very specialised applications, but it's getting to the stage now, producing enough of it, better production techniques, it'll get to the stage where it won't be that, that far down the track that we'll actually insulate our homes with something like this. So that reduces that usage equation, which obviously helps us overall. Fantastic. I wonder if it's got noise-reducing properties as well. Keep the sound of my son doing whatever he's doing in his bedroom. Uh, <laughs> quiet. Yeah. I can't perform miracles, James. I'm <laughs> not sure we'll go that far. Let's get started with this week. COVID tests aren't on my list of fun pastime. This is pretty unpleasant. The swab through the nostrils and the, the scrape of your most sensitive membranes at the back of your throat and all that sort of stuff. With COVID, we're far from getting out of the woods. This business of COVID is, is going to linger along for a long time yet. And COVID tests are still crucial. They're a crucial part of reducing the, the spread of the disease, reducing mutations to produce new variants and, and getting early treatment, etc. But the good news is at least we'll be getting the dreaded COVID test. It, it might be a lot easier for everyone in the future, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And I've been lucky enough, James, I've been able to avoid any COVID tests. Have you had one? I've had a couple. And the way you oh, describe awesome. it. Well, actually, they're not that fun. I've got to say, what I said before is, yeah, they're, they're just, yeah, they're not, not something you'd choose to do on a Saturday night. And if that's the case, some people who may need testing 
may avoid the testing, which obviously isn't a good thing, or people that might need to be tested on a more regular basis, they're going to avoid it if they can. So researchers have been working on a breath test. And when you think about a breath test, we get pulled over on the side of the road for a random breath test, we breathe into a little handheld device, and that's good enough to pick our blood alcohol levels. That's pretty impressive. Something similar is being worked on where people will be able to breathe into a device Within a minute, rather than a day or a few days, within a minute, you'll actually have a result for COVID-19, positive or negative. And they're actually using it now in the real world. There's trials that are being conducted so far in Dubai and Amsterdam and Singapore. But Singapore has gone the next step. And if you flew into Singapore at the moment, I'm not sure how we'd go getting into Singapore, (laughs) but if we could fly into Singapore, then the first thing they'd do is they'd give you a breath test check COVID-19. If they find that's a positive, they then take you off and do the old-fashioned test that you described and all the fun with that. If it's a negative, though, on your way. Thanks very much, Mr. Eddie. Everything's okay. So they've got enough confidence in it that they're saying if it's a negative, then everything's good. You can continue on. Obviously, this is going to be fantastic, I think, to open up borders, travel borders, for example. But I think the way we'll combat it will be a multi-pronged attack. It will be vaccinations. It will be contact tracing. But it will also be testing because if you continually test pick it up early as you said that's a way to really stop the spread of the disease but travel i I think companies like Qantas, virgin they would love to see this happening because imagine going to an airport i want to fly to singapore get tested here before you leave yep you're clear to get on the plane no sorry positive you can't get on the plane suddenly there'd be more confidence with everyone on that plane and then when you land the same testing at the other end yeah, this is going to make the world go crazy once this gets the real tick, isn't it? Yeah. I think so, yeah. So we get the vaccination up to a high enough level that we've got more confidence, but then getting that testing regime up, I can just see places having it. You walk into a club, you want to go to the theatre, you want to go out to a sporting match, whatever. Here's the blow-in-the-bag test, and away you go. Continue on and have a nice life. Well, we look forward to uh, hearing a little bit more about that. Folks, you might remember back in the old days having a, maybe a 32-inch TV screen. That was considered a big screen. Jeez, I do a lot of reminiscing on these podcasts, don't I? If you had one of those suckers, you were rich and obviously had a TV cabinet that took up most, most of the living room space anyway with their big um, heavy cathode ray in the back. Yeah, those big TVs. Nowadays, it's all flat screens stuck on the wall with surround sound as the base model. And anything smaller than a dining room table is not really considered very special at all. You want a big screen. but if you really want to show off now, Matt, just how big a screen can I have installed? Give it an infinite lounge room wall space. <laughs> I think it is the Doctor Who situation, isn't it? You walk into the phone booth and you'd need something like that for this size TV. And yeah. you're right. It used to be 32. And then 32, that's all you've got. Let's look at my 42 or 50 or 55. And it just seems to keep going and yeah, going. Bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, I think Samsung have said, well, we're going to end this. We're going to put a full stop on this. I was looking for the at some, time being. For the time being, you're probably right. I was looking at TVs recently that were getting up to 85. They look pretty nice. And then I saw some 100, some 110 inch, some 120 inch, but they just seem to be a bit pricey. Some of those were up around yeah. fifty thousand dollars for a TV. And then Samsung said, "How about a thousand inch?" And I actually <laughs> thought it was a typo. I thought they put a comma in there and an extra zero. A thousand inches of TV screen. That was it. One thousand inch TV, and it's pretty impressive. It's called the Wall, which kind of, of seems course. appropriate. <laughs> But the specs on it are pretty good. It's got a 120 hertz refresh rate. Now, you still can buy TVs for your lounge room that are 50 inch that haven't got a 120 hertz refresh rate. 8K resolution. Again, you're still buying TVs that are only 4K, for example. But even the brightness, and a lot of these will be installed in, say, shopping malls where there'll be some outside light filtering in. So they need to be bright. Most OLEDs that are out there on the market at the moment have a brightness of around about 
1,000 nits, and nits is an interesting measure of brightness. I won't <laughs> I love, go into the technical details. I love that as a unit. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great unit, isn't <laughs> it's it? It's got me scratching already. <laughs> oh, dear. But this has got peak brightness of 1,600 nits. So it's brighter than you'd expect to see from a little TV that you hang in your lounge room. So that's pretty impressive. Micro LED. Again, I've seen some big TVs at shopping centres, and you walk up close to them, and each pixel's about the size of your hand. So they're not that good in terms of the mm. resolution. But this is micro LED, and again, with that 8K resolution, even at a 1,000 inches, sure, if you got up very close to it, the pixels will still be a little bit too large, but you don't have to stand back too far from this, and it's pretty impressive. So when I'm watching Jurassic Park, those T-Rexes are going to be much closer to the one-to-one scale sort of thing? You'll, you'll have nightmares, James. Yeah, yeah you, they're going to be more Jurassic- lifelike than what they were 75 million years ago. That's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> it would be life-size, actually. So it would actually be interesting. You could just imagine some famous actors with large egos maybe putting one of these yeah, in their finally. lounge room so they could have images bigger than themselves. You know, they think they're larger than life, some of them. They really would be larger than life on the big screen. Got applications in shopping centres and things like that. That's right, large yeah. retail environments. I'm not sure how many people are going to rush out and buy one, but that same technology, they're filtering down, and I think Samsung don't expect to sell a lot of these, but that same technology will filter down to their 110-inch, their 100-inch, that sort of thing. I did actually want to give you a price because I did want to quote something to give some sort of semblance of how long we'd have to save up our Bitcoin for, (laughs) but I couldn't get a price. I searched everywhere for a price, and in the end, the only way I could get a price was to fill in an inquiry form on the Samsung website, which I did, but I haven't got a response back yet. And it worries me when the only way to get a price is to fill in an inquiry form and, and wait for a wait. response. Yeah, right. So you'll be waiting a week while they check out all your credentials. That's right. Does this guy have the credentials <laughs> to be able to afford this TV? No, we won't waste our time. All right. Okay. Now that's a TV. A little bit more reminiscing, folks. Uh, the Hubble Telescope had its 30th birthday this year. Now, I'm having trouble believing that. It takes awesome pictures of deep, deep space, but being 30 years old, It's got 30-year-old computer technology in it. And for those who aren't all up on the Hubble telescope, it's zooming around the Earth in an orbit of about 540 kilometres altitude above our head right now. So upgrading the system's pretty tricky, as you might expect. The question is, is anyone at home still using a 30-year-old computer? And what would you do with a 30-year-old computer if you're at home? It might actually be quite important if you did have a 30-year-old computer because NASA might come and knock on your door and say, can we have some parts? Because we've got this (laughs) Hubble up there. But they had an issue, James, and this is really interesting. I, uh, One of my old computer businesses I used to recommend to all my clients, maybe for financial reasons, but also for logical reasons, they upgrade their computers every three years. It seemed like a good time. The computer was too old. Computing power was doubling every 18 months. They needed more storage, et cetera, et cetera. So about every three years, you upgrade it. You might hang on to it for four or five years, but no one hangs on to a computer for mm. 30 years. So you're replacing those things constantly. I'd just be interested to know if anyone out there still has their computer from 30 years ago. But anyway, keep <laughs> going. Well, that's right. You wouldn't because you've upgraded it so many times in the meantime. But Hubble, it's 540 k's above the earth, as you correctly said. You don't just slip around the corner to your local computer shop, grab a new one and, and slot it into the spot that's there for the computer. You have to rely on that technology to keep you going. And finally, after 30 years the computer on the Hubble telescope died, which means then you've got a lovely mirror and a nice big piece of glass spinning around, completely useless. NASA, though, were smart enough 30 years ago to say, this might happen one day. We'll put some redundant components in. In fact, we'll put everything in there that's needed for anything important. We'll make it all redundant. So we'll duplicate everything, essentially, which is great, except when the computer dies and you can't just physically pull it out, 
how do you access it remotely <laughs> to say, by the way, switch over to your secondary computer, the one we put in there for redundancy. Oh, wait up. You're not listening to me. You're not hearing. What's going on? How do we get access to it? It, So you can't really send an astronaut from the ISS either because (laughs) there's about a 350-kilometre altitude difference there. That's a fair sort of a spacewalk. It would be a pretty cool spacewalk. You might not see the poor guy again. (laughs) But you're right. It's not so easy just to slip up there, go across to the Hubble, fix it up, and then replace it. And they're probably not that interested in doing it because they've got the James Webb Telescope, which will make the Ah, Hubble seem like a Polaroid camera in comparison because the James Webb... Web will do all the things the Hubble does, but with technology that's progressed 30 years forward. Mm. That's meant to be launched later on this year. So they didn't want to go and spend a lot of time and money and effort fixing up the Hubble, but they wanted to get it going. It actually took them a month to get to the point where they could get the computer that was running to be going well enough to be able to say, now switch over to all those redundant components. If you remember when you have your blue screen of death in Windows, for example, and then you boot it up in safe mode. NASA actually said they had to get the computer to the point where it was booting in safe mode before they could get enough operational components there where it would listen to it to say, now switch over to the redundant computer. And they got it done, well done to NASA. It's a pretty big feat to get that computer going from 540 kilometres away. But up and running again now, pictures are still streaming through and they will do even when the James Webb goes up. I'm sure there'll be lots of people still using the Hubble. And I think you've talked about it before where you just see some of the imagery you get out of the Hubble. is just yeah. incredible. Well, I remember when they first pointed at uh, one of the darkest points in the night sky and, and they found that it was just filled with all these galaxies, like all these points of light that were, where each of them were a galaxy in themselves. And it just gave us a big idea that, you know, we are a tiny dot yeah. in this universe. Yeah, yeah, it's scary, isn't it? But to James Webb, when that gets up there, that'll be probably a good little topic for us to talk about to look at exactly how that's improved over the Hubble and what we'll see if we think that pointing into a black spot of the sky and seeing lots of dots, imagine what the James Webb might do for mm. us. Probably mm. scare us even more, James. Here's a question to get the phones ring. Should we trust a major tech organisation to negotiate a deal in good faith? Tell us more about this story. Which major tech corporation are we talking about? What's the detail? The in good faith is interesting. I'm sure if you said to any two parties in a negotiation, did you negotiate that in good faith? They would both say, of course we did. And they may be both completely wrong or one might be right, one might be wrong. We've seen this in Australia where the large social media organisations of the world, the Facebooks, the Googles, were using news information from our news outlets here in Australia and doing it and getting it for free and generating a lot of money, which was leaving the news organisations without a lot of money. So it was hard for them to continue on their business model. We were the first in the world to really take on these big organisations. And now, yeah, it was a big move by our government and we were successful in that. And they now pay those news organisations some money. Maybe they say not enough, but at least it's happening and it's done. Mm. The problem for the Googles and the Facebooks of the world wasn't what was happening in Australia. The amount of money that we were asking for was pittance in their whole scheme of things. What they were concerned about was the ramifications around the world. And this is an example of that. So in France, the organisations, or sorry, the news organisations were left to negotiate with Google, for example. And the French government said to Google, please go and negotiate a deal in good faith and we'll leave you to it, work it out and everything will be okay. And of course, when there was a choice to pay money or not, Google chose to not. <laughs> so French yeah, government of course, is now... there's a surprise. There, that's yeah. right. There's no surprise there. But the French government has now fined Google 500 million euros wow. because they didn't come to some sort of an agreement. Now, 500 million is still not nothing. For some of these organisations, it's still not a mm. lot of money. It's probably the equivalent of us dropping $2 and going, 
whoops, we lost $2. You'll notice the $2, but it's not really going to impact you. $500 million, yeah, that's probably a bit of an impact. They may argue that it was worth the risk because they didn't have to pay that money to the news organisations. Mm. But at least now, that's exactly what they'll be doing, is they'll be paying these news organisations. And we need that around the world in our democratic society to get fair and unbiased news reporting from organisations that have got the money coming in to be able to do that. But there's been a few in France that have actually been hit with some fines recently. There was a 220 million euro penalty for some online advertising. There was Apple, they were hit with a 1.1 billion fine by France, again, for some anti-competitive agreements with two distributors. There was a 150 million euro fine back in 2019 about Google Ads. So there's been a few little ones there. So they're probably getting the message now. The they're government's, a little bit less lawless than what they were. Yeah, the government's are getting a bit serious about this. Hitting them with some fines that they might eventually say, you know what, we should just negotiate a deal mm. in good faith and then everything will be okay. But it's good, I think, around the world to see that this is happening and some of these organisations will realise that they are not lawless and they've yeah, got a basic... bit of accountability. Yeah, some accountability. When words just won't say what you want to say, well, folks, in 2021, there's always emojis. But what happens when you just don't have the right emoji? Stop the press. Surely there is an emoji for everything by now. Well, we need to recognise just how important emojis are with, I don't know, a special day or something perhaps. Matt, what have you got for us on this story? Well, I've got to say, James, I've got to compliment you here. I was very impressed with the last message I received from you when we are organising today that uh, you used probably more emojis than letters in the alphabet in the <laughs> message you sent to me. So you're, you're really getting into the emoji thing. Well, I thought, I thought, yeah, the emoji alphabet is pretty uh, broad right now. And, it is. And, and, and I love my... the fact that you type in a word and it automatically gives you the emoji for that. You don't even have to think about it now. Yeah. Yep. So there was a World Emoji Day. And I do apologise to our listeners. We missed it. I should have told our listeners about oh, the... sad face. That's, that's, thank you, James. Yeah, <laughs> I should sad have told face crying. That, Rolling with laughter, perhaps. That, that there was a World Emoji Day coming up. We've missed it now. We'll have to wait till next year, but that's okay because there's a Unicode consortium and they are responsible for emojis across the world. You thought it was just oh, thank God. your... Yeah, that's right. Thank <laughs> goodness we've got them. You thought it was just your Android operating system or your iOS or even maybe your computer that worked out these emojis, but there's a consortium. And one of the things that I find fascinating with the internet is that we can have laws in our city or our state or our country, but the internet doesn't really recognise boundaries. It does a little bit. There are some censorship protocols that go on in some countries, but generally the internet says, you know what, I don't care about countries, international borders, I just, I'm there, I'm everywhere. So some of these consortiums, some of these organisations that exist have to be multinational, truly international organisations. And this is another one of them. The Unicode Consortium decides internationally on the emojis that are required. It goes through a panel, it goes through on public exhibition, all sorts of things. So hang on, you're inferring here that some emojis get the knockback. Some get rejected. (laughs) Right. Okay. I just thought... Have the idea, present the emoji, move on. No, you don't have too many emojis. I mean, what would happen then? We'd just get emoji emojied out? Maybe, I'm not sure. But there is, this is important too, there is a reference site. You can actually go and look at Emoji Media and they will give you some of the finalists. So some of the ones that have been broken down. So some people, not only do they get rejected, some of the emojis don't even make it to the finalist list. How embarrassing. So there's a finalist (laughs) list. You can go to Emoji Media, check that finalist list out. From those finalists, the consortium chooses the new emojis that will be added to the library of emojis that are out there now. 
voting happens in September, so you've still got time to go and have a look and put your views forward because they want to hear from the public. I can imagine being on the panel, there's a fair bit of prestige there, but I can't imagine going home at the end of the day thinking, I've decided who gets what emojis. <laughs> how, do you tell, how do you tell your kids, Dad, what do you do for a job? Well, oh. I decided a little tiny image of two millimetres in size that people can see. I'm really making a difference in the world That's here. That's right. Well. <laughs> so check that site out, Emoji Media. There's a whole bunch of different ones on the final list. I can run through a few. They've got different new emojis for princess and prince. You've got different handshake, 15 different handshake skin tone combinations. You've got not only a pregnant woman, but you've got pregnant person, pregnant man, you've got a of whole course. range of different things coming. Go and have a look, just it blows me away. The new low battery symbol, a new disco ball, a face holding back tears, a saluting face, a melting face, the list just goes on. <laughs> and only some of these, James, only some will make it to our phones in the future. Oh, look, I'm hearing the uh, the slogan, <laughs> what John Rest rejects, you get only the best, <laughs> only the best of the emojis. <laughs> All right. <laughs> In the height of a hard lockdown, you've got to have a pretty good reason for getting out and about. A note from your mum certainly doesn't cut it, but doctors and dentist appointments, they're pretty safe. My question is, what about optometrist appointments? Now the line's getting a little bit greyer. Never fear, one clever firm is getting around that little problem, Matt. So do you mean that I shouldn't keep carrying the note around for my mum? I thought that no, did get me out no of... Good. Oh, damn. That's not going to get you across mum the Mum said line. it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> so Warby Park is a company in the US and Canada, and they have come up with a solution to a problem that we didn't know we had, say, a year and a half ago. And I'm not trying to put the fear of loss of business into all the optometrists out there. This is not going to replace optometrists. We still need optometrists. They do a wonderful job. But this is a way for people to do a basic check on their eyes, on their vision, without having to leave home. And so you might say, sure, you can buy a chart and you can put it up on the wall and you can stand back and measure out three metres, whatever the distance might be, and check your 2020 vision. But you can now use an app they've created and the app is clever enough to work out how far away from the phone your face is and then give you the right size lettering on your phone to actually check your vision. And then once it's worked out that part of it, it will then change the look of those depending on what it might say you need to do in terms of focusing your eyes. So when you sit in the optometrist chair and they put all the different little bits of glass in front of your eyes trying to work out, is this better, this worse, is this better, this worse, it does that as well. At the end of the little eye test, you can then say, oh, I need glasses of this strength, left eye, right eye, might be different, whatever. And of course, they've got a business model that allows you to order them online and have the glasses shipped out to you then as well. <laughs> no surprises there. I yeah. mean, it goes through and asks all the normal questions about headaches and do you have certain problems with your eyes? So all the things that an optometrist would ask you. And obviously they say if you answer yes to some of these, then this test isn't appropriate for you. It's really about people that are just finding their vision slowly degrading, haven't been able to get to the optometrist for a year or so maybe. So do this test and then the right prescription glasses will be sent out to you. Wow. It just seems fascinating, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that they can take all those measurements um, all so remotely... Well, we live in the future, aren't we? It does. And they've got a name for it, of course. They use a proprietary distance estimation algorithm, or a PDEA, is how they measure how far away your face is and then work out the lettering that it should display on the phone. Right. I'm waiting for the phone lines to start ringing from all our optometrist friends out there. But again, this is not putting them out of business. This is just an add-on during extreme times like a pandemic. This business would not have created this if things continued on the way they were at the beginning of 2020 and we didn't have a pandemic come mm. along. I just love the creativeness or That's the, right. the, the things people that people adapting. come up with when they have to. Mm. We, we just see so many things that are being created because of this pandemic. Amazing. 
Sand is a pretty useful resource. It goes into concrete and brickwork. It's the, it's the main ingredient in glass. Fair to say that without sand, the construction industry would be in a bit of a pickle. But the question is, do we have enough that's accessible? Or more importantly, is there a substitute? I understand there's plastic as uh, something we can use. Is that right, Matt? It just seems crazy that you're saying to me, is there enough sand? I've been to the beach, James. I've seen sand everywhere. I've actually, I've ridden a push bike across the Simpson Desert and there was a lot of sand out there, way too much. (laughs) But things like beach sand are not very good for concrete, for example, because there's so much salt in it. Mm. You get erosion of your rebar in the concrete, so that's no good. Desert sand, believe it or not, is too fine. It's been whipped over and turned over by those winds all those years, so it's too smooth and too fine. So you need certain types of sand. I mean, my dad was a builder, and I used to go and get sand and help him mix concrete, and I just would get whatever sand that was there. I didn't know there was so many different (laughs) grades of sand. But the sand that apparently is the best sand is the sand out of rivers. But there are some places around the world now where it's actually illegal to go and dredge sand out of the rivers because it's doing too much damage to those rivers. So we do, believe it or not, I can't believe I'm saying this, we do have a shortage of sand across the world. And we need it. We use across the world about 40 to 50 billion tonnes of sand for mainly construction. Billion tonnes. Billion tonnes. So that's a lot of sand. It's got to come from somewhere. And we don't see construction going down. We see it going up in places like China and India in particular. Mm. Even though we've had this pandemic for the last year and a half, we still see that construction going through the roof. So you need more sand. So one of the solutions, and I'm sure there'll be many, one of the solutions is exactly as you said. We've got lots of plastic that we still use in society and we've looked at different ways to try and recycle that. How can we be better managers of plastic? Let's not just dump it in the ocean like we used to. How can we use that better? And this is one of the ways we're going to be able to use it better. Take that plastic, crush that plastic up into something that's a good replacement for sand, but you can't replace it completely because it doesn't stick to concrete, for example, the way sand does. So you can only mix in about 10% of plastic as opposed to using it all in the concrete mix. But again, that means you can reduce the amount of sand that you need by obviously that 10% component. So suddenly we're getting that plastic being used in a way that helps our lack of sand and also helps reduce our landfill with plastic. So there's a double whammy or double benefit there. So that's a million tonnes of sand we get to save. <laughs> that's, that's a lot, isn't it? So when you, when you break it down to 10%, it starts to get to be a large number. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So anyway, that'll be interesting to see. It's just about alternatives and, and creative alternatives. Creative alternatives, that's exactly right. One of the things that's interesting that I learned in this story, and I didn't know this happened, but there are such things as sand mafias in India. The sand has become such a valuable commodity that there have been mafia organisations created around the supply of sand. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So picking on kids, building sandcastles on the riverbank there, having a bit of fun, and the sand mafia comes along. They kick sand in their face, and then they say, that's it, I'm taking the bucket, and we're going. We're out of here. (laughs) Get a load of this, people. Apparently there is a wealth of energy right at your fingertips, and we mean literally. Someone's come up with a way to harvest the sweat from your fingers and generate energy with it. This is crazy. Tell us more, Matt. We have talked a bit about the body being used to power things. I think we've talked about uh, temperature differentials between skin and the outside air. Mm -hmm. We've talked about motion in backpacks as you walk along, generating energy. This is my favourite of all the different ways we generate energy because you do it while you sleep. I didn't realise we had so many sweat glands in our fingertips. 
but the number one spot for per square centimetre of sweat glands is in our fingers. Now, we don't <laughs> notice it that much because our hands are in the open typically. Yeah. We're using them. Always the, using them so the sweat's being wiped off, I guess. Wiped off, evaporated. We might think, well, surely you'd collect some sweat from underneath your arms. But it's only collected there that we notice it because it's in that closed environment. We've got our arms beside our chest and so we, we're well, kind of closing it down. I guess it, it makes sense that the, 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 like, slightly sweaty fingers are going to give you better grip. As well. Well, that's probably a good point from an evolution perspective as well. So they've done some testing, and if you sleep for 10 hours, I don't know who sleeps for 10 hours, but they did this testing where they put these little components, little sticky peats on the end of fingers. They had people sleep for 10 hours. On all 10 fingers, there was enough sweat collected and then energy generated that they could power a watch for a day. So essentially, you could charge up your smartwatch just by putting some little pads on your fingertips when you go to bed each night. (laughs) Obviously not much, but again, this is first step. This is the first iteration of something that they can keep generating, keep using, keep working on. But imagine going to bed and you put a full suit on and you go, well, there you go, there's my smartphone charged up overnight. I'm not sure if it's going to be that good. But using sweat to power things, again, we think, well, what's the point? We just plug something into our PowerPoint. But there are places around the world that don't have ready access to power. There's places that might be out of this world when we start colonising Mars. How are we going to generate power there? We're probably not going to have a little coal-fired power plant there, but we might have sweat that's being collected from people up there to generate enough power to run something. So it's quite fascinating. It'll be a while before we can uh, charge your Tesla just by holding on the steering wheel. Though. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe if you drive it fast enough, you'll be so sweaty in the yeah. hands that you will be generating <laughs> enough power. <laughs> Look out, folks. There's more spyware to be warned about. Yeah, No Trojan horses here, though, folks. This time it's Pegasus giving me the jitters. Tell me about this. Pegasus spyware. Well, Pegasus spy software is a legitimate piece of software. And the company that makes it, they've made a statement about this because they say that we make spyware. That's okay. That's legitimate because we do it for the good guys. We (laughs) only sell to governments and law enforcement agencies. And some of those governments have come out in defence and said, well, we do actually use this software because we're trying to target terrorist A or terrorist B and we get it on their phone and away we go. But what's a bit scary is they found this software on phones of politicians, of phones of journalists, even some phones of activists. And the old thing about, well, it doesn't matter, as long as you're not doing anything wrong, who cares if they're looking at what's on my phone? But think of a cabinet minister. Think of someone in government Mm. and they're deciding on a tender for a large project that might be billions of dollars. And there might be some discussions going on around some phones. There might be different projects put forward. Information from different suppliers or potential suppliers might be emailed to them. They're watching that on their phone. All that information could be being fed to someone external and then suddenly, oh, let's go and refine our quote, boys, because this project that's $3.5 billion, we've got this great idea from another company, we'll put in a tender for $3.4 billion and change our specs to match theirs. So there's all sorts of potential along those lines. And journos, getting a source for a journo and not revealing that source is a sacred thing for a journo. Imagine these sources on a phone and then suddenly these sources are being exposed to the public. Yeah, People wow. People have no confidence in those journals whatsoever. But surely if you're careful, you can, you can avoid trouble. You don't, you don't open up any files that you, you shouldn't be opening up, etc. You'd think so, wouldn't you? And that would be nice because we often give advice on this podcast about don't click on that phishing email. It's got a link Makes in sense, it. Don't yeah. fall for it. So, yes, that's all sensible. So everyone's safe as long as they don't do that. But this software is so good, it's got zero click installation so for example you could make 
a messaging oh, call no. or send a message to someone with a specific app on their phone, just a normal general app, and I won't mention any names here, but general apps that people use every day, they could receive a message and the zero-click installation would be effective enough that that would mean that the spyware is on their phone. Oh, my goodness. So, scary stuff. So, the stuff. bad guy can walk past your house... And that's enough for them to have access to all the stuff in your filing cabinets. Not, not even walk past your house. Just send a message <laughs> from the other part of the world. Sorry, yeah. They can get a friend or something. They can start do something remotely and then they've got access to everything. Oh, goodness me. Right. We've got to, we've got to stop doing stories on, <laughs> on some of this stuff. It almost feels a bit defeatist, doesn't it? it feels yeah, so I'm handing him a mobile phone. I'm going back to the old rotary dial um, and we're just going to deal with that. Yeah, it does feel like that sometimes <laughs> because you do see, and I, I hate to use the word clever, but there's some very clever software they create but they're used for purposes that aren't great and it almost seems depressing James when we talk about these mm. stories to go oh no it's another cyber crime or it's another attack another cyber attack and here's one a spyware attack so next week I promise next week I'm not only going to news. have only good news I'm right. not going to have any the cyber attack the world will be attack. a rosy place and we don't have to have any worries about technology whatsoever I promise I promise thank you Matt well I'll look forward to that and that's all we've got for you again today people thank you Matt for your guidance across the golf course of 2021 I'm James Eddy, your hack and slash host, wishing you a fair weather. Until next week.